The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. been attending our evening services uh, regularly know we have uh, been blessed by hearing the word of God from pastors from our sister churches and our presbytery around us. Uh, but we have in our own congregation uh, John Hayward, who is something of a pulpit supply for our presbytery, I think, uh, one of the go-to guys that many of our churches uh, call on when they need someone to fill the pulpit. So uh, we're so glad that John can come and bring the word for us tonight. Well, if you would uh, turn uh, in uh, the Scriptures uh, to Isaiah 7. We're reading the whole chapter. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shirdashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has devised an evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand. And it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt 
and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired from beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there. For all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of the briars and thorns. But they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, would you uh, give uh, increase uh, to uh, your word? Uh, Would it be fruitful uh, in us? Uh, Would it change us? Lord, I just ask that you would do this for our good and for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You all have an impressive capacity. You have an imagination. And imagination is a powerful tool. You have the power to create images in your mind of things that do not exist, of things that are not. The imagination can be used to inspire. Imagine this room filled, both balconies, all three balconies, every single seat, extra seats in the back. Imagine it filled with followers of Jesus. Imagine every church in Lancaster filled with followers of Jesus, worshiping him in spirit and in truth because a revival has broken out. Lord, may it be. Imagine that in East Asia. Imaginations can inspire us. Imagination can be entertaining. It helps make toys that are basically plain like Legos fulfill hours of entertainment. Uh, Imagination can be industrious. Think of the imagination necessary for inventions like uh, the airplane or the cellular phone. And imaginations can also be used for scary purposes. It can be scary, and it can be misused. Uh, Imagination can deceive. Imagination can damage. It's a powerful capacity, but it's also been broken and cursed by sin. Now, this passage addresses such perverted uses of imagination. Because imagination has a key role in crippling anxiety. Imagination has a key role in crippling anxiety, in fear, in shaking like a tree. Fear thrives off the question, what if? What if? What if it turns our imagination specifically towards the future and puts threats, puts bad things, uh, and that can be crippling? What if something happens? What if something bad happens? What if something bad happens to my children? What if something doesn't happen? What if I? What if? 
Our imaginative capacities are weaponized against us in our fear. But here in Isaiah 7, Scripture offers hope for the transformation of our anxiety through the knowledge of God's presence and His promises. Isaiah 7 offers hope for the transformation of our anxiety, including our imagination, through the knowledge of God's presence and promises. Now, that might not be immediately apparent, so let's look at the text more closely. To examine this pa- the passage this evening, I have three points, but sort of five points. Uh, I, I have three points. I want to look at two cycles of problems and promises, and then close with the purpose. But it's sort of five, because it goes problem, promise, problem, promise, purpose. So problem number one. Problem number one, this passage begins in crisis. Ahaz, king of Judah, and the people are shaking like trees in the wind. They are afraid for their lives because the northern kingdom of Israel under Pekah and Rezin, the king of Syria, have allied themselves and are marching to Jerusalem. And these two kings forged an alliance, historically we know this, to resist the power of of Assyria. And and whether they are just pressuring Ahaz to join them against Assyria, or they just want to eliminate another regional power, we're not sure. But the basics are very clear. They're about to attack Judah, and the king and his people are really scared. This is the setting for Isaiah's entrance and message from the Lord. Look at uh, verses 3 to 9. Right here, God's word is clear. He tells Ahaz and the people to be sure that they are not afraid. Do not let their heart be faint. Do not be afraid. Would you believe that's the most frequent command in the Bible? In some form or another, it occurs more than 300 times. It's also a unique kind of command, because who wants to disobey that command? And it strikes our ear a little bit differently. It doesn't hit our ear the same way that many commands hit our ear. And it should, right? But it's also, but it is like all the other commands, that it flows from who God is and the fact that He wants our good. God has good words for fearful people. But you'll see in the passage that God doesn't just assert it as a command. He explains. He gives reasons. But even before He gives reasons, He mocks His enemies, and pronounces his will. So first we see in verse 4, right, that God disses the enemies of the house of Israel. He taunts them. He calls them burning stumps. They're just like those little bits of burnt uh, twig and firewood that's used up after all the useful stuff is gone. And then he fails to name Pekah, unlike the historical reference, it's as if to say, don't be afraid of Syria and, you know, that other guy. What's his name? You know, Remaliah's boy. So God belittles Judah's enemies, and then he unequivocally declares in verse 7 to 9 that the enemies will fail, that it will not be. But again, he explains, what's the logic here? He's God, so his command has to make sense. But but what's, why? Why should Ahaz and the people not be afraid? How could they be confident in this God? That's where we want to dig deeper into God's reasons for this command in the midst of this problem and see a promise. So this is the first promise that we see. Right? It's not just that he's God, and God's powerful so he can stop enemies if he wants to. The logic goes deeper. It's not just that he's God. It's also not because they can be confident that they are worth saving. They can't be confident that they are righteous. What hope would Judah have based on their own merit? 
From the context given in 2 Kings uh, and the opening chapters of Isaiah, we know that the people of Israel in this context are living in sin. And Ahaz is a wicked and idolatrous king. These wicked people don't even cry out to the Lord and ask him for message, comfort, or salvation. So why shouldn't they fear? God's undelible grace, his indelible grace and faithfulness, his unwavering commitment to his promises is what they can trust in. And this is from the, this, we know this from the language that he uses, right? Specifically, this connotes God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. Several times throughout the passage, it refers again and again back to the house of David, the house of David, which calls to the Davidic covenant to mind. And in that covenant, in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord promises to establish David's dynasty as an everlasting one. He says even that he will preserve them through discipline when they commit iniquity. That's a powerful promise of grace. If you look, again, you will notice there's lots of head language going on. The head of Syria is ultimately Rezin. The son of Remaliah is the head of Ephraim. Judgment will fall upon these houses. But who is the ultimate head of the house of David? It is the Lord himself. That is what Ahaz and the people should have faith in, because if they are not firm in faith in the Lord, they won't be firm in anything. And this same dynamic is true for us. Now, none of you have an army of allied forces besieging you, seeking to put another king in your place. Though if you're a parent, you might feel that way in regards to your children sometimes. But ancient Near Eastern warfare aside, uh, you do know what it is to be afraid. You know what it is to be afraid. And and you know that life is hard. And, And you know what it is to be afraid even if you hide your fear behind anger. And you know life is hard. Now, maybe you also know what it's like to be shaking because of encroaching real or perceived threats to your safety, right? Anxiety and fear are not limited to physical health or well-being. You might not just fear for your life, like the people of Israel were, you might be intensely afraid of losing what you feel is your source of life, your source of joy, the thing that makes you happy, what makes you feel alive and energized, the thing that you long for, the thing that you say, if only fill in the blank, if only fill in the blank, then all would be well, and you're afraid of losing that. So if not physical health, perhaps it's financial stability. Perhaps financial stability is causing you fear. Perhaps it's your reputation whether that's your reputation as a reliable employee, your reputation as an affectionate mother, or just as an interesting person. Or maybe you experience anxiety over a particular relationship that you desire and hopes for a relationship. There's not really anything off limits when it comes to anxiety. And I'm using the words fear and anxiety somewhat interchangeably, and that's defensible, but if we wanted to distinguish them, uh, we can continue the warfare analogy. So fear, using that word, is usually a little bit clearer. It's objective, right? Fear is when you're on a battlefield and you see the banners of the enemy coming, and you can point to it. You can say, I'm afraid of that. That, that's what I'm afraid of. Fear is more objective like that. It's that relationship I'm afraid of losing. It's that next meeting that I'm afraid of. Anxiety 
is more like you're on a march through enemy territory and you're constantly scanning. Your tents, your insides are, are, seem to be spiraled. Right? And there's this constant scanning of where is it going to come? Life's not safe. Where is it going to come? That constant buzz of anxiety. And the truth is, you have good reasons to be afraid, to worry, to be anxious. This world is broken. It's not safe. Terrible things happen. Horrible things are done. You have good reasons to be afraid. But brothers and sisters, you have better reasons to not be afraid. If you would, turn to Matthew 6. Jesus argues, uh, and he also disses a little bit, uh, like God does in Isaiah 7. This is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, verse 25. We'll just read a very brief snippet of this passage. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you of not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Right? Jesus, Jesus is going to argue with you. He says, don't be anxious, and you're going to be like, I'm anxious. And then he's going to argue with you and take Jesus on. Right? We're just going to look at the first couple arguments in there. Argument number one that Jesus makes, life is more than. Fill in the blank. Life is more than. Whatever it is you're afraid of, life is more than. Now, Jesus uses food and clothing, those essentials of life, and yet still, your life is more than just food and clothing or whatever you're afraid of. Argument number two that Jesus uses there, who do you think you are? He says, look at the birds. God cares for birds. Don't you think God cares for you more than he cares for birds? Right? This could start a whole other sermon, right? On your identity. Who do you think you are? Do you think that God cares more about you than he cares about birds? And then Jesus has a nice clinching argument with a little bit of dissing going on, kind of saying, what good does it do? Does your anxiety actually accomplish anything? Is it an essential part of your strategy for life? What good does it do? See, we need to remember this to argue with the messages we tell ourselves of overwhelming fears and anxiety. And that message of anxiety, David Powelson has broken into two things. He says, anxiety says, one, life is hard. And two, I'm alone. Only one of those is true. Life really is hard. Whether we're living in the light of threats from the world, others, or ourselves, life is hard, but we are not alone. So when we are afraid, and we will be, we should let that motivate us to run to God. So that's the message Isaiah has to God's threatened people in Jerusalem based upon his promises. What happens next? So if you look over verses 10 to 23, as we look at this second problem, there is clearly a problem. 
but it might be harder to immediately see what the problem is. But there is definitely a problem. God offers a sign of assurance. He says, nothing's off limits, anything, heaven or earth, high or low. Ask for a sign. I'll give it to you. God will encourage and assure his people, but Ahaz demurs. He says, nah, I'm good. I'm okay. I, I wouldn't want to test the Lord. Now, now, Ahaz's response is almost directly out of Scripture, right? It is wrong to test the Lord, but we have very good reason to suspect Ahaz's pious, I'll pass, on a sign from God. He's not really a savory character. If you can look at 2 Kings 16, right? In 2 Kings 16, he killed his son in a pagan ritual and is apparently willing to worship idols under any tree he can find. So, we're not going to dwell on this, but let's briefly pause and just wonder at God's grace and mercy. For the sake of his ancestor David, he offers this guy assurance and blessing. Our God is holy, holy, holy. We would write him off, right? He's not like men. We would write off Ahaz. And like Jonah outside of Nineveh just want Ahaz to get it. He killed his son in a pagan ritual. He's leading the nation in idolatry. But God is kind. But still, Ahaz demurs, right? His excuse is wrong. And it's not just that I'm convicting Ahaz on the circumstantial evidence of, he's, of him being a good guy. We see later on in 2 Kings 16 that he's made an alliance with Assyria. He's made himself a vassal king. To protect himself from a local threat, he's enslaved himself to the great empire. This is foolish unbelief and rebellion, right? Rather than trusting the word of the Lord, the redeemer king of Israel, the creator of heaven and earth, he enslaved himself to a foreign pagan power. This is what explains Isaiah's response in verse 13. Is it too little that you weary men, that you weary my God also? And this leads to the second set of promises, which are promises, but of judgment. Right? Despite Ahaz's rejection, the Lord's going to send a sign anyway. And here we get the familiar part of the passage, the part that we hear at Christmas. Right? It's, only, it's the only part of Isaiah 7 to make it into the Messiah. Right? And we can't really blame Handel too much because the rest of the passage doesn't fit the kind of happy tones we like at Christmas. But certainly the context should deepen our appreciation of the incarnation and the love of God because the context is one of judgment. Curds and honey is not a good thing. It's not an alternative to blessed milk and honey. It connotes the food of a people that live in times that aren't stable enough for normal agriculture. The land will be cursed. It's going to go to seed and filled with brambles and filled with enemies. And God proclaims judgment on Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. But he also tells Judah that calamity will fall upon them worse than the division of the kingdom. That's a bleak outlook for God's people. But it's not. God's people going down the tube is not a sign of God's helplessness. Quite the contrary. It's God that whistles for those little insects of Assyria and Egypt to do his bidding. He will use them like a hired barber to humiliate his people and shave them head to toe. All is not dark, though. A remnant will remain. And they will be provided for. It won't be a feast, but they will have curds and honey to eat. And they won't be at rest. 
where there used to be fruitful vineyards, you're going to have to, there's going to be a wilderness, and you'll have to carry a bow and arrow to be safe. And again, we see why this, in, in the context, why the rest of it didn't make it into the Christmas canon. So again, let's relate this to us today. Maybe you can't relate to Ahaz, and you just think that you'd be excited for the Lord to offer you a sign. But let's, let's, let's pause and draw it out a little bit more. The issue here is trust. Ahaz is shaking in fear. The Lord offers comfort, and Ahaz rejects it and busies himself with political alliances. Well, it's not that faith is opposed to action. It's not that trust is opposed to action. This passage would not call us to let go and let God. If the armies came close, in faith, Ahaz could shut the gates and man the walls for the defense. The real issue is not of action, but of strategy and trust. Ahaz rejects the Lord and makes compromising alliances. He rejects the Lord and makes compromising alliances, and we do the same thing. How do you respond when you are anxious in any of the areas that we mentioned earlier? Do you even see God as relevant? Do you see trusting God as impractical, or at least maybe as trusting God as not enough? When our hearts are set on the things of this world, when we hope for refuge in the things of this world, and the things of this world are threatened, we do not turn to the Lord in humble trust, remembering his promises and his character. You see, that's the double edge of anxiety at times. If anxiety proclaims that life is hard and I am alone, the situation Ahaz is in, why not accept a sign and the good news that God is with you? It's because, while it might be true that sometimes you don't want to be alone and you think it might be frightening, there are times when we love to be alone. Or we love acting like we're alone. Who are you when you're alone? What do you feel free to do when you're alone? Right? When, when, no one, when you think that no one knows you or that no one is watching you. Because it's often being alone that makes us feel free to indulge in sacrificing God's good gifts to the idols of our hearts. That's why we make unholy alliances with the wisdom of the world rather than turn to God. We reject the comfort and care of others and we indulge in self-pity. We manipulate in a relationship to try to keep it we cheat, steal, or overwork to maintain financial stability. We lie, deceive, put on masks to keep up our reputation. We indulge, 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 and distract, distract, distract to either soothe or numb the fear. And like with Ahaz, these alliances will always enslave us rather than free us. They are harsh taskmasters. They demand more and more. Just, just think of the sad realities behind phrases that are common, right? The, phrase, the things implied in a phrase like liquid courage, right? Referring to alcohol. Or binge watching, referring to entertainment escapism. Think of the dynamic of how you desperately want a relationship to go so well that you might cling onto the person for your dear life. And that intimidates them. That burdens them. They're not meant to be your refuge. So they distance themselves. 
And that makes you cling all the more, which pushes them away all the more. Addictions are often related to fears and false refuges. And, and we just want to cherish our precious little sins in the dark. We ignore God and his word, and we just want to cherish our precious little sins in the dark and hope that no one sees. And our idols, our misplaced hopes, promise security, but leave us more anxious and insecure than ever. Our lives become increasingly fruitless and barren like the land of Israel, overgrown with the thorns of the consequences of our sin and unbelief and our anxious toil. And Jesus diagnoses this problem in the rest of Matthew 6. He diagnoses it. He says, you are anxious because you're of little faith. And the answer is to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. How does that diagnosis make you feel? Does it make you feel anxious? You do need more faith. You do need to grow in your trust and your pursuit of God, and that will give you freedom from crippling anxieties. But how? We are idolatrous. We can't just conjure up more faith and trust of ourselves. What are we to do with Jesus' diagnosis? Well, first, we should keep the text in context. Right? The Sermon on the Mount is not a sermon of self-help or social activism or psychological satisfaction. How do you grow in trusting God? Get to know Him. How do you seek the kingdom? Stay close to the king. And who is this King Jesus? Look at his origin story in Matthew 1. This is where uh, Joseph is concerned because his bride-to-be is pregnant. We're going to look at verses 20 to 23. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, the scariest thing in the world for any sinner, the just, good wrath of God has already been poured out on King Jesus. You see, you might not only identify with these fears of Ahaz the people, you might also be painfully aware that you, the fact that your disobedience, your foolish rebellion of seeking false hopes, leaves you no hope in yourself that everything's going to turn out okay. But if you are hidden in Christ, neither your own sin, the disasters of this world, or the devil himself can separate you from the promises given in Jesus and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. There is good reason for the comforting tone of the Messiah. God sent his Son into the world to rescue us 
from ourselves. Praise the Lord that He does not abandon us in our restless unbelief. He will not wait for us to cry out or for our eyes to be opened for our desperate need for a sign from Him. We do not receive judgment, desolation, and literal living death we deserve because the truest King of Israel perfectly trusted God in the face of the cares of this world and on the cross, Jesus did not hear a word of grace, assurance, like wicked Ahaz did. But instead, the Lord turned his back on great David's greater son. He turned his back on Jesus. Christ was left alone. The worst thing that could possibly happen in this world happened to Jesus. So we might be brought into fellowship with him. Christ was stripped naked from head to toe, humiliated, crucified outside of Jerusalem, surrounded by enemies, so we can enter God's presence with joy and honor. The judgment poured out on the cross is the reason for our trust and confidence that all things will work together for our good. As Romans 8.28 says, not in our worthiness, it's not the reason for our trust, not in the strength of our faith, in some sign that God might give us, but in the object of that faith, our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the dynamic that makes Paul burst into praise in Romans 8, 31 to 39. And uh, Paul preaches it. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God elect, God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to that argument. God is trustworthy. He's come close, as close as the Holy Spirit living in us. And our Lord's resurrection and promised second coming shape our future with confidence. These are glorious realities that give us a firm foundation for facing fear in the light of God's presence and promises. Praise the Lord. But what does this look like? How do our problems connect to God's promises this evening or tomorrow morning? Very, very briefly, I want to offer a preeminently practical way. And it's a three-step process, but it is very, very brief. Uh, I got this from Todd Stride, a faculty member at CCEF, and if you prefer it in video with him talking about it, uh, you can look at their website. Right, but since fear and anxiety weaponize our imagination against us, twisting and dwelling on all the what-ifs of the future, we want to return to reality. And reality for us finite humans is the present. And we can return to the present in the midst of fear and anxiety by focusing on our breathing. 
there's nothing more present than your breathing. You're going to try to prophesy false things about the future. So just breathe a little. And as you remember that you're in the present and pray to the God who is with you in the present, and then participate in the present, just as David Pallison says, do the next thing. You can go to the video if you want to rewatch that. So that's what anxiety says. Anxiety says that you're alone, and when it's screaming that in our minds, when it's screaming that in our inner world, this pattern draws us back to the present and helps us experience the presence of the living God by listening to his promises. So to close, what's the purpose of all this? Why does God offer himself to the likes of Ahaz? Why does God offer himself to the likes of idolaters like you and me? The answer is twofold. First, in 2 Corinthians 1, we're told that we can comfort others with the comfort with which we have been comforted. We receive mercy to show mercy. Second, and more importantly, Paul tells us in the next chapter of Romans 9.23 that we receive such mercy in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Let this passage see yourself rightly as a compromised, worried idolater and hear God's promises to you. In the news that sounds too good to be true but is true in Jesus, that in order to display the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, he sent his son to take our sins. Get caught up in that story and compare it with the shallow glory of the lies of your idols. Let that story shape your imagination. Use that as a weapon against your own anxious false prophesying. Stay close to the king who said, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And at the end of that age, he will return and draw us into an eternally secure bliss where sin, sorrow, idolatry, and death will be no more. Imagine that. Lord, come quickly. Let's pray. Lord, would you, as we uh, taste your word, would you make us hungry? Would we want more of Christ and more of your word uh, for this week? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.